welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trighauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. On February 2nd, 2021, a 20-year-old woman who works at a beauty salon in Senegal accused Osmane Sonko of rape and death threats. In the police report, she says that Sonko, a regular client, threatened her with two weapons and repeatedly raped her. Usmane Sonko is Senegal's most prominent opposition leader. He was a candidate for the 2019 presidential election, where he arrived in third place. He's currently an MP and the leader of the party of PESTEF, Patriots of Senegal for Work, Ethics, and Fraternity. The rape allegations are rejected by Sonko's supporters, who see them as a conspiracy by Macky Sall, president of Senegal, to get rid of opposition figures and consolidate power. Protests erupted on the 8th of February, the day of Sanko's summons. Mobilization was especially strong among young people who are captivated by his critique of the political system and calls for transparency in the management of resources. Since then, protests have only continued. Sanko has called for his supporters to continue their mobilization, but to keep it peaceful. At least eight people have died so far. Unrest centers both around Sanko, but also the prospect that Macky Sall will likely capture a third term as president. Regardless of whether the assault allegations are true and whether the incident is being used as a political tool, it's clear that the unrest in Senegal will not abate immediately. Today, I'm talking to two regional experts. Bintu Zahara Sakor is a research assistant at PRIO. She's currently working as part of several project teams, including Securing the Victory, Understanding Dynamics of Short-Run and Long-Term Success in Popular Uprising and Democratization, and Street-Level Autocrats, Individual Decisions with Collective Consequences. Her research interests include political and economic development in sub-Saharan Africa, civil wars, and post-conflict dynamics. She has a master's in conflict resolution and quantitative methods from the University of Essex, and a bachelor's in international relations and statistical methods from the University of Essex. Aji Cisse is a policy and research assistant at Peace Direct. She's been responsible for supporting the organization's research and advocacy work on locally-led peacebuilding in conflict-affected and fragile contexts. She's also conducted primary research in the field, and most recently, she supported a research project on atrocity prevention in Eastern DRC. Aji holds a Master's of Science in Conflict Resolution and a Bachelor's in International Relations, both from the University of Essex. Welcome back to the podcast, Sahara, and thank you, Aji, for joining us. Uh, let's just start with the basics. Uh, Zahara, what's happening in Senegal? Oh, well, there's actually a lot that's happening at the moment, but just to give you a brief context. So in the past week, Senegal has been rocked by one of its largest uh, anti-government protests. And uh, this is was actually sparked by the arrest of the opposition leader called Usman Sonko, who was arrest and charged with uh, rape accusations. So what is interesting about this case is actually Sonko is considered to be one of the serious contenders uh, contender to replace President Macky Sall in the 2024 presidential election. So why he was arrested, he basically has denied that he um, 
he he did rape someone and that the writer that this this has been the allegation has been motivated has a political motivation behind it so the issue here is that uh, according to human rights since the protests started more than six people have died however the opposition is saying different thing they're saying that around 11 people have died. So we hear getting different stories about what's actually happening. So it's really hard to say what is exactly happening on the ground because we're not there to cover. But the interesting thing here that I think we can discuss about in this podcast is that what is, is it just because of the arrest of this opposition leader that is really sparking this protest? Or is it other factors underlining that is really causing the... The, the, the protests in the country. I think Aji can add more to you, Aji. Although the rape has been the catalyst for the movement, Senegal has struggled with widespread youth unemployment, growing inequality and corruption, corruption scandals. And the repressive measures during the COVID pandemic has really um, stoked public anger, especially with young people, as they um, are mainly active in the informal sector because... Um, they can't find work in the formal sector. So these COVID um, curfews have really impacted them in a, in a big way economically as they are struggling yes. to feed themselves and their families. So although the rape is a catalyst, there's a lot that has been going under the surface, which has led to this protest that have turned violent. I think Mr. Sonko has been um, the voice that the young people have been looking for as he rose to provenance um, focusing on government corruption and poverty and this led him to draw, to draw strong support from young people and although he has been released he is calling for larger protests but he has made a point that it should be peaceful so for the young people this is a guy who has like who has managed to um, say what they wanted to say and have a platform yes. for other people to listen so before we move on to kind of the regional context um I just want to talk briefly about the actual catalyst here, or at least the superficial catalyst, which was this rape accusation uh, and and trial. So I'm just wondering, there hasn't been due process in the same way that there normally would be in Senegal. And uh, Zahara, maybe you can just explain a little bit about that. I mean, why do people believe that perhaps this isn't true and that it was just an excuse to remove him? I think this is actually like a pattern that we have observed across the whole West African region, but also like in a wider context of um, sub-Saharan African region, where whenever the opposition comes in onto the scene, there's one way or another accusation that have been related to them, where which has been used as a mechanism to basically eliminate them. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are, first of all, questioning. The timing is really... Um, questionable because it's really right up to the election and this is also not the first time if you look at the Senegalese context this is not the first time that Makisal, President Makisal, has basically used various te- uh, tactics to basically exclude uh, rival from uh, election by arresting them for example in 2019 another opposition called Khalifa Sal was he was actually a former mayor of um, Dakar and he was actually arrested for two years ahead of the 2019 election and pardon after Makisal won the election so you see again um, 
just to add to that as well, there was another one called Karim Wade. He was actually the son of the former president, Abdullah Wade, and he was really popular among the youth as well because he started disagreeing with what the, poli- the, the kind of policy that Makisar was implementing and the promise that he basically has failed to realize with the youth. And I think that once he came on the scene, Makisal again used the electoral system to basically eliminate them. So we keep seeing this pattern. And because of that, this is really like made people question whether this accusation is true or not. But I think another thing is that we have to also see from the opposition side as well. Why is this guy specifically being accused? You know, why is it just him, not other ones being accused. And that's because he's been criticizing Makisal for corruption. He even have evidence to support his argument. And he's also been linking Makisal government to the French, um, the former French colonial rule, like the connection between these two and how influential France is when it comes to the political development and political development of the, no, political and economic development of the country. So I think he has all reason to be eliminated basically from Makisar. That's my opinion. Uh, and I would just like to add, um, because of rape cases are so sensitive and hard to prove, which is an issue in the West as well, um, the fact that there hasn't been clear, transparent um, um, process during this has really hindered this case to be resolved. And I feel like the protest and all the um, gossip or rumours that have surrounded the case has made it really hard for people to know what is happening. There's no clarity on what is happening. And I feel like because of the protest, like Sarah said earlier, um, the government are going to use this as a cover-up. So even if he's guilty or not, we won't be able to know it as there hasn't been a due process that we can see. So I think that's that's a shame because if the girl has been raped, then she hasn't got her justice. It it has become political, you know, hula baloo for power. So I think that's one of the issues when it comes to rape and adding all this protest and violence so it kind of drowns out the victim's voice. And this is a pattern that we see everywhere, to be honest. So it's a shame. But can I just add one thing as well? I think that as uh, as this situation keep continuing, and let's 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 see that uh, let perhaps hope like Makisal basically give up because one of the fears that the youth have is that he might potentially run for presidency, which we can see, and he might actually won, which is actually breaking from uh, Senegal's well-known characteristic of being this example of uh, consolidated democracy in the region, which is really fractured and have a lot of semi-democracy and authoritarian regimes and so on. So I think that that's actually the main fear here. Will Makisal go for a third uh, mandate, because we've seen that in the case of Guinea, we've seen that in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, we've seen that in various cases, and I think that's what's the main fear here. At the same time, I also want us to acknowledge whether if the opposition won, would he become like Makisai, because Makisai actually, before he became president, he actually criticised the previous 
government of similar policy that he is doing now. So mm. how do you break from this pattern where different opposition fight for the same thing, they take power and then they become what they themselves criticize. So how do we break from that? And I think that's one of the things that we African have to discuss more about, researchers have to do more research on as well. Definitely. And thank you both for the reflections as well on the, on the kind of catalyst for all of this. And Aji, as you uh, rightly pointed out, this is an issue all over the world where, where sexual assault victims are pawns uh, in political processes. Um, so whether or not this is being used in a, in a political way, whether or not it's true, uh, it's, it's extremely unfortunate. Um, so now that we have all the background, let's move to the regional context. Um, Zahar, the last time you were on the podcast and we talked, uh, we were discussing protests uh, also in the region, um, specifically Guinea and Ivory Coast. And this was also when Nigeria was uh, really in the headlines for the NSARS campaign. But we talked about some uh, other countries that were perhaps not as visible uh, in the headlines. So can you maybe set this into that same context? I mean, We've seen such a series of protests, of course, around the world, but also in this region specifically in the last year. What's going on? Why do you think it has it has really been sparked in a way? Is it, for example, the pandemic? I think this is one of the reasons people keep saying it is it is pandemic. Pandemic has a really tremendous impact on the situation. We cannot underestimate that. Like the pandemic, just like we've seen across the world, has impacted the economical development of a various country. For example, uh, Senegal, the economic annual economic growth went from five no, six point five actually in two thousand nineteen percentage uh, in 2019 to actually 1.3% in 2020. So this is, you see a really tremendous decline in terms of economic growth, and that will, of course, have an impact on various aspects of the population. But I think when we see from the regional context, we have to question ourselves, why is this, okay, Corona is really sparking something here, but this is a region that have been fractured in various in many years by conflict, by, you know, stream of refugees uh, and various issues. So what is actually the core reason for this region to be suffering as much as it's doing, you know, and especially the youth population? And number one of one of the main reasons for this is, of course, youth unemployment. So similar to the case of Guinea, the case of Cote d'Ivoire, we know, for example, that Senegal has around 60% of the Senegalese population is youth and between the age uh, 15 to 24, which is a tremendous large part of the population. The problem here is, is that although youth bulge makes it a big part of the population, the Senegalese government doesn't have the right policies to accommodate for its youth population. Neither is education-wise, neither is healthcare, neither is opportunity-wise. So that's the youth unemployment aspect, you also have to think about in regards to poverty. The region keep declining in terms of poverty. Inequality is increasing. More than one third of the population in Senegal lives under poverty. And 75% of the population actually suffer from chronic poverty. That's a huge part of the population. And then I think you can come in and like add more to, to this thing, which is the issues of colonialism is so present that 
that is actually you cannot avoid it. I do. Do you want to actually add more to that one? I guess. Um. Yeah. Um. I'll, can I just add something um to the question that about around why there's so many protests as well? Um. Earlier research have noted that leaders have been using the pandemic to create more repressive measures. So there has been issues with population, uh, population people being scared that the government are. The government is trying to entrench their power by creating more um, harsher curfews. And this is weird because during the protest, um, the government suspended access to social media and a few TVs um, had their license suspended. So this has been a lot. So imagine a pandemic where you, you're struggling to feed your family, but you're also having your freedom of speech being taken away. So all of this can just create a bomb where people feel like they need to get themselves heard, which is create a more because if you talk to someone who are like-minded, they're more likely to feed into your frustrations. And this just goes around creating this big um, issue that has people going out to the streets because they have no other way of expressing their frustrations. Um, but regarding when it comes to colonialism, uh, one of the major criticisms for Makisala is that he is there to help the French economic economic um, policies to get more money from the country. For example, people have people have have criticized Makisala and um, during the Charlie Hebdo murders. He he went all the way to France to express his condolences, which is understandable. However, there's so many hundreds of people dying, taking the back way to Europe in order to find jobs. And he doesn't acknowledge this at all, which is why there's a very big anti-French sentiments with the protests, why they are burning all these French businesses. Because to them, um, the French are there to take their money and exploit them economically. So there's a big contrast where people are walking around being hungry and seeing all this luxury around them that are owned by French businesses. So for them, this is a way of trying to get their country back because they refer to to Senegal as France Afrique. So to them, it's just another extension of France. So there's this sentiment that's like we we are we've had sovereignty for several decades. However, our leaders are still not bringing me putting our interest first. We're putting the colonial powers' interest first, and that has been a big. Um, problem that um, Senegalese people have been talking about. So, and I think that's one of the major reasons Franco is so. Big. Mm-hmm. Can I just add one thing there? Is like, in terms of policy, like Senegal is actually still following the same policy, neo-colonial policy and neoliberal policy that was implemented during the colonial time. And this has really impacted what kind of food they can produce. More than 70% of food that is consuming in Senegal, for example, is imported. So that means that whatever happens in external market has a really impact on the Senegalese people. And I think that these are some of the things that doesn't only exist in Senegal, but it's across the whole region. So this is, when we look at the regional context, how do we address this colonial past in a more efficient way and get rid of that and actually focus on taking care of our own population? That's the most important thing here. 
Yeah, so Aji, just following up on, well, on both of your points, um, yeah, I mean, French businesses have been sort of targeted by the protesters, um, and for good reason, as you point out, with the history of this uh, colonialization. So I'm wondering, what is the what is the way out of this? I mean, uh, how do you think Senegal can both be stable, uh, but carve its own future that is more independent from that French influence? Um, I think the problem is that this is just not French influence. This is the international community. For example, when it comes to the World Trade Organization, um, countries in the South have been forced to to get policies that will open the market more to goods, which has made them, um, which has made farmers, for example, in the in these countries, not be able to earn a lot of money because they're not allowed to have protectionist policies. As a result, uh, there's a big gap because a few people will benefit from these policies imposed by these um, multinational organizations. And when it, and with France, I think they did talk about, for example. Um, taking away the CEFA. I don't know if that's right, Sarah, like um, for to have their own currency. However, I don't think um, there's they have enough base to be able to completely cut off from these colonial powers because most of the structures that they have is an extension of colonialism. So I think it's up to the leaders to be able to initiate policies that can help them protect their population. Because the problem is, from what I see, is that there's a lot of corruption and greed. Most of these leaders, they end up having accounts in their former colonial um, countries, like they have houses there. So instead of thinking of the population as a whole, they're thinking of how they can, what they can gain in the short time that they're there. As a result, they're not, they're not um, ready to invest their time or energy into actually helping develop the country. So I think there's a lot of um, little things in play that needs to be addressed. But I think the major thing right now is to ensure that the population are fed well. I think that's one of the major things. Because there's enough food to feed the population. It's just the divide between the rich and the poor that has been a big issue. And the fact that African leaders don't stand up for their community. Either they feel like they don't have a voice or they don't care. I think that's that's the problem, really, being educated enough to care about your country. Well, in closing, uh, and both of you can address this question, um, but what do you think we can expect in the region? I think uh, I will go. Aji, do you want to go? Okay, I will go. Uh, I think, for like, although this is not what I really want to see, not because I don't like Makisal or anything like that, I don't have any political wishes, bad wishes against him, but I really want, I would really love Senegal to continue being a really example of um, consolidated democracy and stability and economic growth in the region. However, one thing we see seen is the dominant effect of this third mandate. So president wanting to hold on more to powers and wanting having this uh, imagination that only by them being in power can they achieve more for the country. And I think this is exactly, unfortunately, by exactly what we will see in the case of Senegal. Um, 
or we can actually see like then the opposition actually stepping up and also uh, religious leader, because one thing which is really interesting about Senegal is the religious leader, they are very influential. So they could step up and perhaps support the opposition and he can win. But then will this situation stop that? I don't think that will, that's where you're going to stop that. So I think it's more about how do we readdress the colonial past creating system, creating policies that will benefit African people rather than the colonial masters. And then at the same time, being accountable for our people, being uh, aware of like the issues that's happening there. And I think one of the way to really address that is African leaders really coming down and being interacting with the, the people and knowing what's actually happening because there's a huge gap between the leaders there and the average population there. And then lastly, I think that in order for this to change, the really the international community really have to hold France accountable because there's a colonial tax that is still being that a lot of the French um ex-colonies are still paying to France and this has to be addressed and we cannot go on like this because the impact of the issues really affect uh, Europe, you know, like for example through migration. So there's the the world has to see this as not just like a, a really small country, a West African country's problem. It has to be seen as, okay, this has to be addressed if we want to achieve this the sustainable UN sustainable goal like we all want like praising about you know so i think that would be my conclusion i don't know but i hope that the turn mandate thing does not happen in there but i am pretty sure it will happen so thanks mm. aji uh final final thoughts no i think um sarah summarized it perfectly but one thing um she mentioned that is very interesting is that and which is a case that's mostly seen in Senegal. It's like religious powers have a lot of hold on the society. And this happened in the previous, with the previous leader, Abdullah Wada, who tried to create a third mandate. It was the religious leaders who went to him and placated him for him to not um, do that. So I think that's one of the things that has really helped Senegal. Um, there's another leader that, even though they're not, exactly neutral they do hold political powers in check at certain times so yeah well thank you both so much for joining me today and talking about this this topic and uh i guess we'll see how things develop and maybe we'll have to follow up at some point so thank you both thank you so much india thank you thanks for picking prio's piece in a pod This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauger. Music by Mark Manenthal. Additional research and writing this week by communications intern Simona Cecilo.